This is Jerry White. I'd like to introduce you to Sage Intact, a leading provider of restaurant accounting and financial solutions. Sage Intact helps their restaurant customers reduce time, cost, and resources on tedious financial processes so they can focus on servicing customers and growing their businesses. To learn more about how Sage Intact restaurant customers make smarter decisions with critical visibility in business performance, I invite you to get more details at sageintact.com forward slash hospitality. That's S-A-G-E-I-N-T-A-C-C-T dot com forward slash hospitality. Welcome back to Fast Casual Insider. I'm Jerry White, Associate Publisher of Plate Magazine and host of today's podcast. Today we're talking with Don Fox, the Chief Executive Officer of Firehouse of America, LLC, in which he leads the strategic growth of Firehouse Subs, one of America's leading fast casual restaurant brands. Under Don's leadership, the brand has grown to more than 1170 units at restaurants in 46 states, Puerto Rico and Canada, and is recognized as one of the best franchises in the country. Firehouse Subs continues to experience strong growth in the fast casual segment, albeit amid fierce competition and industry challenges. Let's find out some of the keys to Don's leadership and the success of Firehouse Subs. Welcome, Don Fox. Uh, great to uh, spend some time with you, Jerry. Yes, th- thank you very much, and thanks for giving up uh, some of your uh, day to join us. I'd like to talk about a couple of specific areas I- in the restaurant industry. One of the, the things we hear a lot about, Don, is the term disruption. I always felt that disruption was kind of like a negative term, but it is one that I think we can't escape in our marketplace today. And one of the ways that I think our industry is being disrupted is certainly uh, what you have talked about in the past is uh, less or fewer uh, dine-in visits. Firehouse is traditionally focused on dine-in consumers more than many other uh, limited service change, but obviously the consumer's demand has changed with that. So why don't you talk to me a little bit about what Firehouse is doing to kind of address that shift in consumer behavior? Uh, certainly. Uh, a, a quick comment on on that term of disruption. You're absolutely correct. It doesn't have to be a negative. I, I think I'd, I would equate it to opportunity opportunity when there's disruption. And it's a lot of times it's, it's finding out, taking a close look at it, analyzing it, and, and than seizing the opportunities that it represents. So so that's clearly what we've done at Firehouse. Now, as you pointed out, for years, throughout most of our 25-year history, we were primarily a in-restaurant on-site occasion. That was a bit rare in the, in the, rest, in the uh, sandwich segment. Uh, most sandwich concepts typically have leaned towards takeout business going back for decades, but uh, Firehouse was always different, and it was the nature of the experience, nature of the the food experience. I've served the food plated; it's hot subs. Uh, so normally, you might say that there's other product challenges, having the the, the product travel well when it's when it's hot, etc. So for most of our history, more than fifty percent of our sales were dine in, and and that was unusual in the category. But starting in two thousand thirteen. Uh, even before the industry was talking so much about the shift off-premise, we started to see a little bit of bleed in that area. And for the next couple of years, you know, 13, 14, even into 15, uh, we saw modest decreases in our 
dine-in business, but we hadn't yet crossed that magic uh, waterline of 50%. And when we dropped below 50% and we could no longer say about our own brand that we were primarily, or the majority of our business was dine-in, that was a an aha moment. And the drops had been marginal, but, but a clear trend was there. And it wasn't really long after that 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 started to get talked about more within the within the industry and especially started to accelerate. And, and everybody has seen that over the last two to, to three years now. So going back about three, almost four years ago, we had to turn our sights more to what we did to improve the off-premise experience. Uh, the most fundamental thing we did was change our packaging. Uh, that got in put into place throughout the system a little over two years ago now. And, and as we've seen a resurgence in our sales, it's very much linked to that. Uh, there's a lot of elements. It's, it's no one thing, but improving the quality experience for the off-premise occasion, uh, th- that, that was front and center. And I would submit if we hadn't made the packaging changes and improved product quality on the to-go experience, we wouldn't have enjoyed uh, the, the sales increases uh, that we've we've seen. Basically, all of our sales increases have gone out in that card. And so, so we had to redefine that that part of the experience and and have uh, done so successfully. And Don, at that time when you made that change, how much of your business actually was off premise? Do you recall what the numbers were? Yeah, at the time that we implemented the packaging change, our dine in had dropped down to about 46 or 47% of our business. But to put it in context today, it's at 38%. So at our peak, going back to 2012, we were about 53.5%. So that is a that is a, a dramatic shift, 53.5 down to, down to 38, a hair below 38. And, and this the big question, I think, for everyone, because I don't think Firehouse is probably unique in this respect. Uh, I would imagine most brands have seen similar trends. I think it's more pronounced for us because, again, in our category, more of our business skewed on-premise compared to our competitors. But um, I think every, everybody's seen the same same trend. It was more pronounced for us just because we had a bigger pool of business that was potentially at risk uh, than some of our competitors. Yeah. And did you actually kind of feel like this was coming or was it something that kind of just uh, jumped in on you all of a sudden and said, hey, wait? Yeah, no. If if I, you know, looking back on it, everything is always clear in hindsight. Uh, looking back on it, we can recognize that, well, this is a trend that started, at least for us, in 2013. But again, those first three years or so, the decreases were uh, maybe we lost less than a percentage point of dining incidents. And uh, you look at it on one given year, like the first year when it was it was a little less than a percentage point. Well, okay, maybe that was just a little bit of an, an anomaly. One thing that helped bring our dining incidents to an all time high in 2012 was our promotion of Coca Cola Freestyle. We're still the the largest brand uh, in the world that has it in every single unit. So we were an early adopter. It's done fantastic things for our business, still continues to. Uh, but it was very pronounced when we had completed the installations in our system in 2011 and then advertised it. And we had weeks that we were running 20% positive comp sales. Uh, th- that Those type of innovations and things don't come along very often in, in a brand's history. And because of the nature of that innovation, uh, that even spiked our dining business a little bit more. And, and so the fact that looking at the next year that dropped a little bit, so so we um, 
assign different rationale to it. But it really wasn't until th- about three years of the trend. And and in particular, as I mentioned, when it dropped below 50, that we said, hmm, you know, this really looks like this is <laughs> going to continue to go and go south. And and that has, and, and again, the whole industry wrestles with this, that shift from uh, dine-in to takeout, even if you were able to recapture all of the lost dine-in business and translate it over to off-premise, the challenge for everybody is, and I'm going to speak generally, it is tougher to garner the same level of profitability out of off-premise transactions because you're not selling as many drinks. It's more difficult to sell a beverage. Now, I think we have an advantage with uh, Coca-Cola Freestyle still today because of that. And our drink incidence, uh, even with the shift off-premise, is much better than the norm, but still it is not what it was. And we've got to in fact, this is still a work in progress. So we have to find ways to innovate and manage the guest experience, uh, work with third-party delivery services. Uh, they, they've got to become key allies. You know, we have to find ways to hopefully sell more beverages than what we're selling now and help replace some of those lost profits because of the, the shift in the uh, destination. Right. And would you say the example of the freestyle machines that uh, are prevalent in your concept there uh, is that an example or in your view of a supplier who kind of recognized a need there and satisfied it for you and worked hand in hand with you to show what it could do? Uh, yeah, uh, the the partnership that was involved there was tremendous. Now, of course, as as Coke went about the business of, of developing it, it was the broad marketplace in mind and not necessarily geared specifically towards firehouses needs. But what we saw early on was in our position within the fast casual segment, our type of concept and I think Coke would agree with this, uh, we were ideally suited for it. And just be, being in the fast casual where our check average is, the nature of the locations, the ambiance, there were a lot of things that played into that uh, favorably. And where they were an excellent partner is that we had a product uh, that was very powerful for us on the menu already. And it was our Firehouse Subs Cherry Limeade. And when we first started our relationship with Coke prior to Freestyle, because we'd already been with pouring coke for a few years before freestyle they were they were a great partner with us already to do a custom formulation for our cherry limeade product as branded as a firehouse product so great partnership there and then when we went to make the move to freestyle we had so much equity with the consumer in that product that we we knew we couldn't make the move to freestyle unless we were able to get a freestyle version uh, of cherry limeade and they were ter- terrific. So a great, a great example of a great partnership and optimizing that for us and paid great dividends. And Don, tell us uh, how you kind of track your customer base. You know, uh, I imagine that your transactions and loyalty programs and whatnot give you kind of a read as to who your typical customer is, or is that the case with uh, Firehouse? Yeah, I mean, we rely on multiple channels of research to uh, make sure we have our finger on the pulse of who we're over-indexing with, who are our key customers, uh, our advertising agency of record, the Richards Group uh, out of Dallas, Texas. They've been a great partner with us for now uh, the last uh, little over two years. So they bring resources to the table. Um, I'm a big believer in analytics. So we, we compile a, a host of sources. Uh, uh, Technomic has been a great partner with us. I, I 
use their data uh, strategically. We use them for some targeted information as well, some you know more custom uh, research. Uh, Sense three sixty is another company that provides great uh, insights on our on our guests and and their traffic patterns and behavior. Having a, a robust loyalty program as we do gives us a wealth of information, better understand their transactional behavior. So these days you're in such a better position to understand how to target your media. It's a much more complicated world than it used to be, but it also gives you a capacity to be much more precise in your targeting, much more efficient with the dollars that you're spending in that arena. And I think very importantly, you have a much greater capacity to measure what you're doing and if it's working. You know, there's there's an old saying or joke about advertising is, you know, I feel like I'm getting benefit of 50% of my advertising dollars. I just don't know which half. I don't think that's so true anymore because you can do such robust analytics and uh, especially when it comes to anything that you're doing in, in forms of digital advertising and more and more of our media spend is invested over in the digital arenas as opposed to traditional broadcast. There's a place for both. Right, exactly. I think it was uh, John Wanamaker who said that. And at a, at the time, I think digital, or I should say now, digital has kind of solved that or made that expression obsolete in the sense that digital is very precise about where you're going. Um, well, one of the things I uh, I find interesting is that, uh, to, you know, the customer today, the, the so-called Gen Z uh, and the millennial, I guess, before him, who, uh, you know, seems to be leading everyone in what they want, how they want it. If you ask me, I think the fact that they're ordering off their iPhones or iPads and having it delivered says, is this, is this today's couch potato? Doesn't really fit the picture I have of, uh, of Gen Z or millennial. It applies more like to me for the baby boomer. We were the ones who were on the couch uh, with our remotes. and But anyway, uh, you know, if people are just uh, picking up their phone and pushing a button and saying, here's what I want, and I want it delivered by some other party, is this the new couch potato? Yeah, you know, you know, my view, I don't... Uh... Again, think, things are so much more complicated than they used to be. I, I think if you went back a couple decades ago, people could speak with greater certainty about the behavior of any particular generation. And I just don't think that's as nearly as true anymore uh, because you can just as easily find within the boomer segment, let's say, adopters of technology that are going to give any Gen Z or millennial a run for their money. And, and, you'll, and you'll find within millennials and Gen Zs, you'll find rejectors of, of social media users. And so it, it's, it's a mistake to paint with too broad a, a brush when it, when it comes to people's uh, patterns of behavior and so on. So we put a lot more emphasis on psychographic profiles, behavioral things, again, that don't necessarily relate to a, a generation as much. Now, there are some age-driven things that do influence some behaviors, um, especially as people age and they become more diet conscious in a, in a different way, health concerns, those types of things that, you know, arise. And, and you'll, you'll find a propensity you know, for some, some different behaviors because of things like that. But you, you were led with this on the, on the topic of technology in particular and its influence. And without a doubt, technology is influencing things. But again, it, it cuts across a very broad canvas uh, of, the, of the population. And you know, one, of, one of the key factors, I think, that impacts our industry in total, but doesn't get talked about enough, is the disruption that's taken place in traditional retailing. Now, I, I think as of last year, I believe e-commerce for retail, not, in, not inclusive of food service, but just uh, retail, was 14%. 
Now that's grown substantially. And in in some levels, people might say, well, gosh, 14% is still a really relatively modest amount. You still have 86% going in brick and mortar. But as as the retailers will tell you, hey, that that 14% is the cream of the crop of our margins. They're they're running tight margin businesses in retail as well. And, uh, you know, try to try to lump off 14% of your restaurant traffic and chances are a lot of businesses aren't going to make any money if they if they lose that. But the relevance of that e-commerce to the restaurant industry is that traditional retail traffic visits journeys have always been inextricably linked to restaurant visitation and they, they, they go hand in hand with one another. And, and the, the stark evidence of that is experienced by every restaurant operator for decades in the holiday shopping season. Almost all concepts enjoy a higher seasonality between Thanksgiving and, and Christmas. Why? Because people's normal travel patterns are disrupted. Why? Primarily because they're out shopping and those shopping visits are married with restaurant visits. Everybody would agree about that. But I think if you start looking at the data, well, what do you see in the Thanksgiving, the Christmas period? Well, the industry is losing some of its, its seasonality. It's not nearly as, as pronounced. And, and why? Well, because people aren't going out on those brick and mortar shopping occasions as much. And it's, hence, hence, you've lost the, the opportunity to get a restaurant visit that was so prevalent before. Well, I, I don't have a number on at hand, but I would imagine e-commerce percentage of business is even higher uh, in that period. I could be wrong. That's just a, a guess on my part. But just spread it out over the course of the year. We know it's 14% and growing, by the way, annualized. So there, there's a, a relative number of restaurant opportunities that have been stripped away. And I think that, cr- that creates one of the more significant headwinds for the industry. You know, we're, we're dealing with an environment where, at least among brands, traffic was down about Two percent in 2018. Traffic is running down at about two percent this year. I, I think there's. I, I think there's not a. It's not. It's not a coincidence, and it's probably proportionally in large part because we're taking away some of those occasions. Now, I, I think a, a some a word of caution for everybody. I talk about this quite a bit is when you think about off-premise consumption. You know, off-premise consumption happens in a lot of different ways. There's a lot of different channels for off-premise, so it's not just delivery services. But one of the challenges. In fact, it may be one of the most important challenges that our industry faces is that despite now there being almost $20 billion of third-party delivery being done, it is not additive to the industry. And, and it's not added revenue. It, it may be to the individual restaurant, but not necessarily to the industry as a whole. Cor- correct. And, and we're among the brands. We, we've enjoyed a benefit out of it. But it's a bit of a canary in a coal mine when you realize that in the macro sense, delivery is not adding restaurant occasions. So if you fast forward uh, any number of years, imagine a world where the delivery space, the apps, or I'll just call it the digital space generally, that the digital space is occupied to an equal level that the street is that the two marketplaces are equal in terms of restaurant presence and options to the consumer. So all you're doing is spreading the pie a bit differently. Now, uh, different attributes come into play differently. It's not to say that if the two marketplaces are equal in terms of the number of restaurants competing, both in the street, let's say in the analog world and the digital world, it doesn't mean they're going to have equal results in those two places. Different attributes come into play. Convenience is is important in both, but being convenient now takes much different uh, tactics, depending on whether you're talking about convenience on the street, which is so much about physical location, ingress, egress, but 
But boy, you better think about how you're going to be convenient over in the digital space as well. And that involves a whole different uh, set of concerns. So the more the digital space begins to look like the street, again, not and recognizing that none of that business is additive uh, in the macro sense, the challenge when it comes to the delivery services is that you've layered in cost that is, well, arguably not sustainable if there's not incrementality. The individual restaurants that embrace it, and we're in that camp, but we have great relationships with third-party providers, uh, and, uh, and, and we're doing a growing amount of business there, and we see incrementality within our brand. But, but I just looking long term, I fear the day when maybe that's not going to be the case. And if you haven't, uh, if you can't sustain the incremental nature of it, you've then layered in a, a strata of cost that is um, not sustainable. I, if I were to make a prediction, I think that in the end, the consumer is simply going to have to pay more for the service. In the end, everybody's got to win. Uh, everybody's got to be uh, content with their margins if it's going to be sustainable. So in the end, uh, it's going to be the consumer that pays more for one way or the other. I think the only question is, what's the recipe? What's the formula? What's either the commission structure or fixed fee structure? How is that presented to the consumer? But I do think in the end, the, the consumer will pay more. And, and, and what will likely happen when that time arrives is that the, the marketplace will probably compress a bit. Just out of price elasticity. And then there will be uh, brands that can work better in that space because their, their value proposition in terms of their product and the, and the price that the consumer pays for it is aligned well from, a, from an overall value standpoint with the price the consumer has to pay to get it delivered. And there will other brand, there'll be other brands that maybe won't be able to deliver that same value relationship and it may either find it very difficult to compete or, or, or won't compete successfully and, and will have to uh, bow out. This is Jerry White. If you're a restaurant looking to reduce time, cost, and resources on tedious financial processes while gaining better insight into business performance, I invite you to learn more about Sage Intact, a leading provider of restaurant accounting and financial solutions. Find out how Sage Intact can give you the visibility to help you grow your business at sageintact.com forward slash hospitality. That's S-A-G-E-I-N-T-A-C-C-T dot com forward slash hospitality. Wow. Uh, I have to say that uh, what you've just been talking about, about the digital world and it being uh, equal to the restaurant or the physical world is extraordinary. And it's a big, a big shift, if you will, in our market. And and following up on that, um, what what does that actually say about what the restaurant of the future will be? And how is Firehouse adapting to that? So we have to think about all aspects of that digital experience, the ordering process, how the food is traveling to where it needs to go, whether that's through a third-party delivery service, whether we're delivering it ourselves, because we do have a, some restaurants that do what we call internal delivery, uh, and what the experience is for the guest as they're transporting it to wherever they're going to go. So in the old days, our concern seemed to stop once we saw the customer walk out the door or the delivery driver now. If that's as far as you're looking at it, boy, you're making it a big mistake. You see, when you're dealing with the in-restaurant guest, it's easy. You observe them all the time. You're able to make all the observations, 
you care to make regarding how the experience is. You solicit feedback. You watch the customer enjoying the experience or having a difficulty with the experience. You've got all of these cues to work with to help improve the experience you're delivering to the guest throughout the entirety of their experience. But when you go off premise, it's a whole different ballgame. So how much are you really observing? How much feedback are you really getting? Do you understand really every nuance of it? And things come into play like the importance of packaging and the messaging on packaging. And I could go on and on with the things that, that you need to then take into account. So we examine all those things and continue to refine them. We are getting ready to open up a new restaurant design that it doesn't ignore the in-restaurant experience at all because we're still, the average restaurant still does more than a third of our business uh, dining. And we would like to get back to a position where we're building that back up because again, it's, it's more, more profitable. But when it comes to the off-premise aspect, we have taken things into account in the design to make the pickup points for the to-go orders as intuitive as, as possible to have the staging areas of it in a, in a place where we can also do it more productively. For us in today's environment, this doesn't have as much to do with the customer as it is an internal issue. We felt we needed to find ways to improve crew productivity to be able to help manage the labor costs that that the entire industry has to wrestle with. I'm very excited about progress we'll be making on that front with the new design. We've made changes on how customers queue up when they go into our restaurants. The way we queue customers in our restaurants has been the same way for 25 years and customers get accustomed to it, but it's not at all intuitive. And we still have a lot of virgin territory we have to develop in as a brand and, and still a lot of customers, millions of customers we still have to introduce to Firehouse for the first time. So, so we think it's important to make it a more intuitive, more comfortable process for them. So we're tackling all those things. And uh, and again, if you think about the digital space for a moment, you know we're now uh, approaching the point where nearly 20% of our business is digital overall. And, and we have restaurants, the, the outliers on the upper end that are significantly higher than that. Uh, you know, with third-party delivery, for example, uh, we have some restaurants now that are approaching 40% of their sales and delivery. Those are the outliers. But when you look at examples like that, you have to then ask yourself the question, well, how high is up on this? How long are they going to remain the outliers? Again, just like on our on-premise business, where's the settling point? Because there will be. I don't think anybody can really predict. I've not seen any consumer studies that, that I could point to with confidence that says, okay, you know, based on trends and behavior or what the consumer says they may do in the future, you know, here's where it would net out. I, I think it's a big unknown. And the biggest challenge in dealing with, by the way, are the structural things from a real estate perspective. We're in a business where you're making very long-term decisions on what you do with physical plant, dining room capacity, kitchen capacity, et cetera. And we're at a unique time for this because the consumer is moving faster than the lifespan of our investment decisions. That was not really the case for, for many decades. In fact, I, I would venture to say that the, the major issue most restaurateurs had when it came to the uh, longevity of their investment decision was more about what would happen with the trade area. They usually never went into it saying, well, okay, I'm doing a particular type of restaurant. Here's my square footage, et cetera. Their biggest concern would be, all right, based on my brand, the demographics of my consumer base, where I'm at with my price points, is this trade area going to remain a viable trade area over the length of my investment? When you're in a space like a lot of fast casual brands where you're going in, you know, doing a five-year lease with them, five-year options, most franchises, if you're in a franchise system, you're looking at a you know, 10-year franchise agreement. It's an easier move if the 
trade area changes in some way with the nature of it and doesn't support the brand uh, anymore. A freestanding restaurant, a uh, full-service casual dining restaurant is a different animal. But back in the day, that was the biggest thing you worried about. What, what macro change in the trade area is going to turn this good investment into a bad investment? But now... That's an entirely different equation. I mean, you can think you've got all that nailed down and the consumer is changing behaviors in ways that are so rapid. Those consumer changes in behavior outpace, in some cases, the investment decision. And it just makes the whole prospect a lot trickier than it used to be. Right. And it doesn't seem to be any question that technology certainly has driven this disruption or this opportunity, as you refer to it. And, you know, me looking at uh, technology, I, I look at it with uh, not a great deal of understanding, but knowing, you know, what it can do for me. And I'm just wondering, I don't think we probably have realized all of the things that technology will do for the restaurant industry. And one of the things I wanted to ask was about the culinary and also the food prep area of your your business. Will technology ultimately, you know, have a bigger footprint in the back of the house? So will you have uh, robotic uh, sandwich makers or, or is that coming? Uh, it's, it's more likely than not. One thing that's been difficult when it comes to robotics, especially in the in the restaurant industry, is working with food, the tactile nature of it. It's a it's such a different animal, no pun intended, than uh, building a car between <laughs> bolts and rivets and and a very finite tolerances that uh, lend itself to it. That's why, of course, robotics have been in those fields for decades because you and you can you can engineer around it. But there are inherent challenges. When it comes to it, and, and you'll hear about different things out in the industry that are being done and cutting edge. I mean, the one uh, one that's always top of mind for me is the uh, concept uh, creator by Momentum Machines. It's out in uh, California, and that's the most impressive robotic food preparation operation uh, that I've seen yet. And dealing and dealing with a product that's inherently very difficult to do, uh, hamburger, and then especially with condiment application and, and and so on. So it's not impossible. There's an example of where somebody's doing it. But even then, that's on a very singular product. So if I think about in my category, I would love to be able to try to get in that space and do some things with it. But when you're dealing with a menu that, let's say, in a sandwich operation that is much more diverse it brings along with it um, uh, a number of challenges. You know, nothing is, I would say nothing's insurmountable in that area from a technology standpoint. It's the cost implications that are probably the biggest barrier to it and to, and that probably keeps folks uh, from moving into it. I mean, there are, there are a couple of niche categories where some robotics and automation have come into play. You know, one salad concept or a bowl concept, pizza. Uh, has and because again, pizza lends itself to it a bit more. Uh, I think from the uh, tactile nature of the, the product and, and so on. But um, I think you'll see more of it, not less. Again, probably the financial aspect of it is the uh, most difficult hurdle to to overcome. But even now, yeah, with uh, the the wage uh, pressures, that has. What's happened in the last couple of years on that front with more communities, localities going to $15 an hour uh, minimum wage and some even above that, that just hastens the speed with which entrepreneurs, inventors, 
uh, because that's where a lot of it starts too. You know, on the when you're on the innovation side, actually doing the inventing, doing the engineering, etc. If you see, if you can sense the marketplace there, people will get to work on it, and then let the marketplace find the technology versus the restaurant operator going out and trying to develop the technology themselves. Um, so. It wouldn't surprise me if certainly within five years, if you see more prevalent applications. Right now, I think everybody takes opportunities where they can. Uh, and some things may seem uh, modest uh, in terms of the potential impact, but but they're still they're, they're meaningful. We can do things with automated slicing, for example, still having you know fresh sliced product uh, proteins. But there's better increasing automation in that regard that allows you to uh, get greater efficiency. Uh, if I think back 25 years ago at the start of Firehouse, there was a person sitting there every day pushing a handle <laughs> against the, the slicer doing the entire day's uh, uh, entire day's inventory. Uh, there, there is an interesting, somewhat of a challenge that the industry has, is there was a period of time, looking back more in the 80s and into the 90s, where in large part because of trying to optimize labor back then, the push was to take as much labor out of the restaurants as possible by doing as much processing and prep outside of the restaurant. And back and back in the day, that was relatively simple things: getting getting pre-cut produce, uh, you know, anything pre-sliced, pre-packaged, etc. And all of that meant to take a labor out of the restaurants. I remember there was a point in time, and I can't remember the precise year, but Taco Bell famously got huge credit for reinventing their brand, primarily going away from more fresh, uh, in-house prepared items to commissary type prep, and, and they were very they were celebrated at the time for doing it and how innovative that was going to be. Well, things came full circle because of also the consumer's more sophisticated palate over time, wanting fresher ingredients, et cetera. I mean, in many, you could, um, oh, you could almost make the case that Taco's Bell's move towards the one end of the spectrum opened the door for Chipotle to come in on the other. And it's not that the two things can't coexist. And you know, it's been interesting watching over time uh, uh, different pundits thinking that, oh, Taco Bell is going to hurt Chipotle or vice versa. And that doesn't really seem to ever turn out to be the case. They they operate in their unique atmospheres. There's more than place for both. And consumers that look for the respective attributes of both, and they can all you know coexist quite nicely. But certainly, if you look at the whole fast casual segment, of course, uh, so much of the fast casual segment was built out of putting aside the processing the efficiencies that might get picked up uh, in, by industrially preparing food and going more towards in-house fresh ingredients. And I think that's something that people should be mindful of as they think about robotics and so on. It's still, how do you keep those attributes that uh, customers are looking for in terms of the qualities of the food and, and not compromise it? And, and it, it, it can be done, just a matter of time and money. Right. And I think, you know, uh, picking up on that point you made, uh, I think a lot of the manufacturers, at least back in the 80s and early 90s, who were trying to help operators uh, hold down their labor costs, you know, were making a lot of food, as you pointed out, uh, pre-prepared, if that's if that's a word. <laughs> uh, but, and, but anyway, I'm not, not necessarily thinking that maybe 
the image of that was necessarily a good one in the sense that, well, wait, I don't want to go to a restaurant where they're essentially going to heat up a frozen meal for me. I can do that myself. So it, I think it suffered from some terminology there. But I think in a, in a you mentioned a couple of times coming full circle, and I'm just wondering if this uh, current, we're talking about ghost kitchens and this company called Kitchen United, uh, which I'm sure you know about. I mean, is that, you know, they seem to be having some success with helping concepts grow, albeit by a shared commissary like that. Yeah, I think it's it's a little too early to predict the outcomes on this. One thing I'll lead with is that there have been several examples of restaurateurs that have tried to go uh, entirely to delivered food, you know, trying to uh, no storefront. Uh, no, um, no dining area. And it really hasn't worked out so well because one of the, I mean, there's a, there's a host of inherent challenges. You know, if you're doing delivery only, then by its nature, you're much more likely to compress the sales volumes into very narrow channels of time. You see, when you have a, a successful restaurant, one that people love, and because of the nature of the product and so on, the job they do, it creates demand. And customers figure out when it's busy and so on. And what happens if they really want to go and they enjoy it? They they know when the busy times are. They they then and you you end up with an expanded lunch. I mean, success. It's great restaurants that are packed from eleven to two. Weak restaurants that are busy for about forty five minutes and it's done and it's done. You know, so people adjust their behavior and in conjunction with the, the sales patterns and so on of the restaurants. So the challenge that the restaurants have that are going, that are relying strictly on delivery traffic is that when the customer goes to place the order, they want it when they want it. They have no idea how busy the restaurant is at any particular point in time. So, so that is no longer a factor in them deciding when they're going to go. So to be successful, these restaurants have to be set up in a way where they can deliver a high volume of product in a much narrower window of time. Now, they may set up the kitchen facility to be able to do it, but then what's problematic is getting it delivered within that amount of time. I, I think there are, there are many parts of the, the business model when it is like that delivery-only concept that have to be vetted that I don't think anybody's really done successfully yet, particularly when it's just a concept. Now, the idea of uh, joint venturing you know, or co-venturing on uh, space that may have a little bit uh, more promise, but again, the cost, uh, as it settles out, it's going to be a matter of, well, it always comes down to the economic model. And it's going to be for that operator. Let's say if I have a, a firehouse subs operator in that with, with their piece of the space and we're satisfied with everything, how we'll work operationally. And so their, their business is restricted to whatever delivery traffic is going to happen. Yeah, well, they are, well, certainly they have economies on labor and so on. They have no service staff. They're not ringing up orders. Everything's coming in digitally. All sounds great. But in the end, it's uh, the, the big factor is going to be what's, what's the price to play? And can it work financially? Is it going to work for whoever the, the sponsoring entity is that's actually controlling the space and providing the opportunity for the brands that, that may, be, may be in there? Nobody's far enough along with it, I, I think, yet to show whether it's a, a sustainable uh, model or not. Uh, I'll just put my again. I'll put on my uh, my put my crystal ball out in front of me. If if I was a betting person, I wouldn't give it better than fifty fifty odds of panning out as something that would be mainstream. I, I think some of these things can work a little bit better in a ultra dense central business district, very urban environment 
where you've got greater density delivery times, let's say, are more compressed and so on. But as far as something like that being mainstream in, in let's say, outside of the top dozen metro areas in the country, I think the chances become increasingly remote that it is, is viable. But I stand ready to be corrected or proven wrong. <laughs> okay, okay. And will that have an effect as you continue to think about uh, opening new restaurants under franchise arrangements and so forth? Or uh, certainly, what uh, what we keep an eye on that has impacted our business is how we define trade areas and so on. In fact, a move that I made proactively over a little over a year ago was we on our own initiative as a franchisor, expanded the protected trade radius for the restaurants. It's quite unconventional. Most franchisors would not do that. Uh, We had a one-mile protected radius. I expanded it to two. Franchise didn't ask for that, but it's something I did proactively because I thought it was uh, was fair uh, to do it. And certainly it was a good goodwill gesture. One of the things that um, can be a pain point, hasn't really been for us yet, but as you get into the digital space, delivery and so on, the lines blur in terms of how you define a trade area and so on. And so we're watching all that space closely and it does have an influence on how we're defining trade areas, uh, how we're deciding if uh, a trade area is appropriate or not. I think the um, the biggest impact though, because we haven't, while we've downsized our square footage in our restaurants, the other big factor we'd have to take a look at is, are the trade areas themselves being defined differently? Are some things becoming more or less important than they used to be. Um, and this goes back to the very starting point of our conversation. Uh, I think we look at retail drivers in a different way than we used to. It used to be, in some cases, a no-brainer to locate a, a restaurant at a high-traffic uh, retail area. But that's not as... You know, can't make as, as strong a case for it. So, so if you're really looking for a, a more long-term, more assured bet, you're really having to take a look at what's bringing people to the trade area or keeping them in the area? And is it something that stands a lesser chance of being disrupted? So for example, hospitals are almost the, that's probably the most consistent traffic driver. Even though people are getting healthcare benefits and service these days digitally, which is quite yeah, you know, that that's only been talked about more recently. So even, even even my thinking on this starts to change a little bit. But up until more recently, when I've read things about again uh, medical providers giving care, you know, people taking uh, photographs digitally of their skin to be able to send to um, you know checking for skin cancer and so on. Whereas normally that that no matter what that was that was going to be a, a doctor's visit. Uh, so, so normally we would look around medical complexes and so on. Hey, well, this is as safe a terrain as you can get. People that are going to be sick have to come here. People who want to visit people in the hospital, they've got to go there. The people working in the hospitals have to be at the hospitals. Very stable. And I still would say that ranks at the top of stable trade areas. But other types of areas, whether because of the retail shopping I talked about, you know, so retail visits are down and some type of even office work. You know, you used to be able to locate a restaurant with great certainty around office complexes and, and, and be able to be able to look at empirical data that said, okay, we've got X number of workers in these types of offices or buildings. Well, nowadays, and there's and maybe the data is out there. Maybe a vendor will listen to this and call me. But uh, I'm not aware of good data that says, well, really, what well, you know, what percentage of a 
of a potential employer's workforce is actually not even there. We may have we may have data that says how many people they employ, but that doesn't mean they're there. Uh, and they are maybe 10 miles across town. And so there is still some deficit of information when it comes to that and getting a better understanding. But I would say we see definite differences in traffic patterns over time in, let's say, some of those white collar centric office areas versus sometimes what even happens out in the suburbs. You know, you used to traditionally think about suburb locations, especially bedroom communities, as areas where your clientele is going to be stay-at-home spouses, parents, uh, you know, not working, construction workers, if there was home construction going on in the areas. Now it's a little more varied because, again, you know, what percentage of those households have people working out of their homes now, white-collar people working out of their homes that, that didn't exist 10 to 20 years ago in the same way? Uh, it's, it's changed. And not even that long ago, there was, uh, you know, you talk about the white collar workers uh, in office locations. Many companies provided a meal service at lunch or breakfast uh, as an employee perk. And those things have all gone by the wayside for the most part, uh, unless you work at Google, I guess. <laughs> but uh, anyway, they are also the, the folks who provide the food for um, office workers are struggling with how do they compete in this new digital world? You know, do I have to have as big a cafe as I used to? Or do I bring in restaurant brands and really say, look, you know, this is the way I think our customers want to be fed these days. So there are a lot of issues to deal with there, which brings me to another question. Does Firehouse look at uh, non-traditional locations, such as on a college campus or in, in a, um, a BNI location where someone can set up a licensing arrangement? Yes. So, we, so we've had some really solid success in the first few airports that we've uh, done business in. We have a long history of being near college campuses. So almost, almost every university or college has its typical restaurant row outside, and we've been there for a long time. But uh, but we're moving into that space now where we'll be more associated with on-campus uh, dining. We've done some institutional things, and by institutional, I mean with, with companies. Uh, sometimes, as you were talking about, uh, opportunities where we may be the featured restaurant operator one day a week and go and set up shop uh, on a, uh, you know, just on a spot basis. Uh, so yeah, we actively play in that space. One of, one of the advantages that we have is from a uh, technical standpoint, uh, our equipment we have hot subs, but we use a steamer. It's uh, just, well, just that with steam doesn't require ventilation. There's no grease laden vapors and so on. So we're very easy. We need 110 power. That's it. We can, we can set up shop and serve hot subs uh, just, uh, just about anywhere. So we're also big on doing remote events. Uh, we do uh, every year a big job at the TPC golf tournament at Sawgrass for the Players Championship. Big, big event for us. And we're out there for a week uh, selling food remotely. So yeah, we, we look for those opportunities just about every chance we get. Wow, that's terrific. In the uh, the few moments that we have left, um, I, I don't want to miss the opportunity to have such a, um, a veteran, and I use that in the right sense of the word, a veteran person online here to share with us maybe the one or two things that you've learned along the way of your career path that are non-negotiable, that are important, and remain with you no matter where you're at in recommending to the restaurant industry. Gosh, I could give you a long list of things, actually, but I'm going to hit on a, a couple of key ones. I mean, this is a tough business. I've been at 46 years, and there isn't a thing that I or, or any leader accomplishes without their people, and that is such a cliche. But as is the case with all cliches, they become cliches for a reason, because they're absolutely fundamentally true. And if you're going to have success, 
uh, in your business. It's dependent upon your people and the culture of your brand. And so in a leadership role, you've got to walk the talk and lead by example and, and treat your people fairly, provide opportunities for them. And generally speaking, if you're doing a great job taking care of your people, then you're a big step along the way towards success. That isn't the only thing that makes you successful. You have to couple that with a great brand, a great product, and so on. But I'll tell you, you can absolutely fail with a great brand and great product if you're not taking care of your people and leading them well. Uh, the other thing I would point out, and I recommend this to everybody, is it is a very simple philosophy. You're growing or you're dying. And people should remember that personally in the context of their role in the industry. You could say in their broader life, it's just as important. But speaking on the industry, so you better embrace that personally. There, you know, There's not a day that doesn't go by that I don't learn something else new about the industry, the brand, or ideally about myself. You're always uh, learning and getting better because this business is so competitive that if you ever think that the status quo is good enough, then you're losing ground because there's the next hungry entrepreneur, restaurateur, CEO, hourly employee. You know, if you're, if you're an hourly employee in a restaurant and you rest on your laurels and think status quo is okay, there's another person just footsteps behind you hoping to do a better job in such a competitive environment. And you have to go at it each day saying, hey, I'm growing and, and take that same approach about your business. Because if your business, if your brand's not growing, if you're not relentless about growth, then the opposite is happening. So status quo is not sustainable because other people are catching you. And if you're in any state of decline, it's by definition, it's not sustainable. Is you've always got to reverse it. And, and if that being the case, boy, you better not ever lose a growth mentality. And we're blessed. Uh, you know, we've embraced that. It really started with our founders, always had that mentality. And I'm not just blessed, it's a result of all our hard work and everything we do. There's not a day in our brand's history and coming up on 25 years that we haven't grown compared to the day before, the week before, the month before. And as long as it's on my watch, uh, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that's the case. You know, um, Roger um, Ebert and Gene Siskel used to do a movie review series on PBS, and they would always uh, occasionally interview a uh, a director or a guest, and they would always start off the, the same way. They would always say, what do you know for sure? Which is kind of my way of it was asking you kind of to sum up, sum up what you find important and have found important in your career. So you're basically saying, Don, that your staff is uh, more important than your customer and treat them as such. If you're not growing, you're dying. And good good enough is not good enough any longer. Uh, you have to be better. And uh, we spoke with Meg Rose earlier today, and she likes to say, learn at every turn, which sounds like uh, something that you do as well. And if I could, I want to add one thing. The team is more important than me. And Again, that's something that I think uh, some some leaders uh, lose lose sight of. Well, that's also very important, very important. Well, um, uh, we did not nearly have enough time to uh, talk about what was important to us today here, but uh, let's just say that we've made a start, and uh, we'll have to make another uh, appointment to go forward. Terrific. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of Fast Casual Insider. Our conversation with Don Fox was full of actionable advice for fast casual operators looking to understand and stay ahead of what's next. Our audience can subscribe to our podcast via your favorite service or find us at restaurant.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you once again, Don Fox. 
This episode was produced by Dante32. 